Support for this show comes from Nine West. Winter's finally coming to a close, but you might still fall the very ground beneath your feet with the hottest new trends from Nine West. Nothing beats the confidence the perfect little piece can give you. And their new collections of footwear, apparel, and accessories will let you take on the world in style. Use their Need It Now edit, also known as the Nine edit, to search effortlessly through trends like Western-style boots, loafers, and more. It's time to wear our confidence, ladies. We can't be contained. Because this spring at Nine West, we are infinite. Buy now and get 15% off with code PODCAST24. Welcome to In Her Shoes. I'm Lindsay Peoples, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of The Cut. On this show, I get to talk to people that we love and admire, or some that we just find interesting. We'll explore how they found their path and what maybe have gotten in their way, and how they brought others along now that they've arrived. Deborah Lee is truly in a league of her own. With over 30 years of experience in the entertainment business, she was often one of the first and only women in the room. As the former CEO of BET, she was at the forefront of curating black culture with fidelity. Now, she finally gets a chance to tell her own story. On this episode, we talk to her about her new memoir, I Am Deborah Lee, which details her rise to the top and the struggles along the way. Deborah, thank you so much for joining us. On this show, we always ask about the literal shoes on the feet of our guests. So tell me either, um, I know you're at home, so tell me either what kind of shoes you're wearing right now or um, shoes that are your favorite currently in your wardrobe. Okay, well, right now I'm wearing Ugg slippers (laughs) (laughs) so I won't slip on the stairs, my wooden stairs. I had a fall. Uh, But my favorite shoes... um, Right now, I'm more into Alterissa. Is that the way you pronounce it? Altazara. Altazara. Mm-hmm. They have nice pumps, and I've been wearing yeah. a lot of their things. Uh, but my favorite pair, I must say, for the book tour, I got a pair of kite uh, patent leather boots. Oh, nice. Oh, my okay. God. They're so comfortable, and so they go over the knee, and they look great with everything. So I would go with the kite uh, patent leather boots. Yeah. Okay. So you've been in the industry now for over 30 years, obviously, um, now in your, you know, in your own capacity doing something very different. Why did you feel like right now was the right time for you to move into a different chapter and tell your own story? Well, um, four years ago, I stepped down from uh, BET. And um, at that point, um, I had been with the company 32 years, Mm -hmm. and I had been CEO for 13 years. And I had accomplished almost everything I wanted to accomplish at BET. So I stepped down, and then, uh, you know, retirement has been very busy, but I knew I always wanted to write a book. And so I thought this was a great time. And the other thing that helped was COVID. Uh, that kept me home and off a plane for two and a half years. So that was a good time to write it. And I figured um, stepping down from BET was a good ending to the book. Um, You know, it starts with my childhood, but um, 
thinking about where to end it. It was it was a good ending. And so that's why I did it. I always wanted to do it. And then also when I stepped down, I noticed looking around, there are very few still Black female CEOs. And um, I found that disturbing. And I was like, why is there not more of us? So that gave me extra push to write the book and tell my story uh, and kind of look at some of the issues that we face as women in the C-suite and as uh, Black women. Right. I mean, that's actually what I kind of want to talk about my next question, because um, when you are a Black woman, I think in so many of these roles, you are often the only one. And you've been such a trailblazer for women and women of color in the industry, um, particularly Black women working in entertainment. Tell me a bit about what that was like starting out in in being the only one and trying to, you know, make a name for yourself. Right. Um, It was challenging, but exciting. Um, I started out as a lawyer. And I talk about in my book, I Am Deborah Lee, um, that I never wanted to be a lawyer. It was really my father's desire. So when I came out of law school, I clerked for a year and then I went to a big law firm because I thought I was going into government, but the Republicans won and I didn't want to go into a Republican administration. So I went to a law firm, stayed for about five and a half years. And then it was time to really decide what I wanted to do in life. And luckily, BET was a client. They knew my work, and I had done some outside counsel work for them uh, for a couple of years. And uh, Bob Johnson offered me a position as vice president and general counsel. Um, I was always interested in the communications industry and in media. Uh, that was kind of hard to do in Washington. You know, not a lot of companies in Washington. So Mm -hmm. as I was leaving the firm, I did a lot of interviewing in New York, but I wasn't really ready for New York. I liked Washington. Mm -hmm. And so when Bob Johnson offered me the job, I was like, well, this is perfect. You know, I can still practice law. I can join a communications slash media company. It's in cable, which was very new at the time. I went to BT in 1986. And at that time, they didn't even have cable in D.C., So people thought I was falling off the face of the earth. They were like, you're doing what? And so it was it was just perfect and uh, a good way for me to enter the industry. And then um, almost immediately, I started doing uh, a hybrid of legal work and business and found out I was more interested in the business side. Um, So when I got in the business side, that's when it really became clear I was a unicorn. You know, I would, I joined a couple of boards. I'd be the only black person in the room, the only black woman, sometimes the only woman. Um, when I remember, and I went, you would appreciate this, when I went on the Revlon board many years ago, uh, I replaced Martha Stewart because she was going to prison. And, <laughs> but it, it was true. And um, I was only the second woman on the Revlon board. And I always thought that was so amazing because we would sit in board meetings and talk about colors of lipstick and packaging and, you know, marketing people would come in and pass products around. And you had all these men commenting on it. And I was like, well, what do they really know? I mean, I know they know what they like and what they see. But over time, by the time I left the Revlon board, it was about 50 percent women. And eventually Ron Perlman's daughter 
took over as CEO. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. yeah, that was a big move. Uh, but it's still, it's still, what I say, it's still lonely at the top. And especially for Black women. Yeah. I mean, speaking of that, though, did you have any sense of imposter syndrome when you were starting out in the industry? And how did you combat that? That's a great question. Uh, the, at first, I didn't because I was working at a Black company. So that was helpful. You know, you take race off the table until we went out and tried to borrow money or when we went public. Um, but, you know, I was surrounded by people that look like me. Then when I was appointed COO, I realized um, that it was still unusual for women woman to be COO, even at a black company. You know, the women were high-fiving me in the halls and they were so happy. And they said, oh, we never thought this was hap- would happen at BET. It's such a boys club, you know, and you're so nice that that uh, amazed a lot of people. You know, how can you <laughs> be so successful and be nice? Um, so I started thinking of it in that terms. I think the biggest um, case of imposter syndrome I've had in my life was when I went to Harvard Law School. One, I was a little intimidated by the name, Harvard. Uh, two, a woman, a white woman who lived across the hall from me at Brown uh, who I've become friendly with, she did not get into Harvard. And she told me that I got in because of affirmative action. And, you know, it's kind of weird that I remember that 50 years later or however long it's been. But that right. had an impact on me. And when I got there, I, you know, I looked around, everyone was um, valedictorian in their class from college. You know, there were a lot of people uh, in my section who would raise their hand to volunteer. Each section at Harvard Law is about 140 people. All the professors call on people. So it's scary, especially for an introvert like me. I didn't like speaking in big groups of people. And I saw all these, you know, smart people. And then the professors didn't want to talk about public policy, which is what I was interested in. I was interested in using the law as a weapon to get, you know, better uh, laws and policies for my community. And they didn't want to talk about that at all. So, you know, I would say my first year of law school, I really suffered from imposter syndrome, so much so that most of the students were in study groups. They get together with four or five other students in their section to study with and talk about you know, the law and the issues. And I didn't even join a study group. I was so afraid someone would find out that I didn't belong there. And so I did it all on my own, which is probably not a good idea in retrospect. Um, but then the second year I went to the Kennedy School, um, I did a joint program and I kind of found my footing and found my uh, people who had the same uh, interests that I had. And that made the rest of law school much easier. Yeah. I mean, we talk a lot about at the cut and being, you know, the first and kind of the weight that that carries for a lot of people. And just like, you know, the pressure of representation. Um, Describe to me in what ways you felt that weight throughout your career and particularly, you know, when you're working for a network that has to represent black people in such a big, you know, public way. Right. Well, for me, that was a heavy burden. Uh, at BET, it was a heavy burden because for a long time, we were the only 
network targeted to the African-American community. So our audience expected more from us. They expected news. They expected breaking news. And uh, they expected us to be there when uh, and deal with the issues they wanted to deal with. And we didn't have those kind of resources. You know, we didn't have a lot of live shows until we finally had uh, 106 in Park. And that was live. Um, and so we always had to think about the community. And the Black community is a pretty conservative community, truth be told. So we had problems with videos. You know, a lot of people didn't like uh, the videos. Uh, we, we had a, a show called Uncut that showed kind of explicit videos. And that, I remember Uncut. Yeah. <laughs> that was the first thing I canceled when I became CEO. I said, I'm not taking the flack for Uncut because, you know, I never watched it uh, before I became CEO because I was never up that late. Uh, but, you know, it was just the community was just down on us because of that. And then Nellie's video, Tip Drill, came along. One time I went to Spelman and I thought the women there were going to tar and feather me because of Tip Drill. And I was like, look, I'm not even CEO yet. You know, I'll deal with it when I'm CEO. So it was the first thing I canceled. But then um, in my book, I talk about uh, the protesters outside my house for seven months. And it was caused by a local minister who wanted me to take off three specific videos. And I said to him, you know, I have a standards and uh, standards and practices committee. They review every video. They send them back to the label to be edited. And if there's a real problem, they bring it to me and I make a final decision. And I said, I can't let you decide what videos go on BET. And if I let you take off three this month, you'll be back with three next month. Right. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. he was not happy about that. So he bussed his congregation to my house every Saturday for seven months. And they would stand outside with bullhorns yelling, I am not a bitch. I'm not a hoe. Um, and it didn't make my neighbors too happy. Uh, luckily, I had a um, a gate around my house. So they couldn't get too close. But it was really disturbing because I, I felt I was trying to do the right thing. When I became CEO, I made a pledge to the audience that I would do more original programming. Um, and, you know, Viacom had acquired us. We had more resources. So I was in the midst of, you know, re rebranding the company, getting more staff so who knew about original programming so I could do shows like The Game and Be a Mary Jane and, you know, New Edition Story. But that took a while. And so it was really um, disheartening to me to be in the, the midst of that controversy. And I always say I didn't go to Harvard Law School to decide what videos should go on a network. That wasn't my choice. But yeah. here I am, and it's part of my job. And the first real st stand I took against a video was Kanye West's um, flashing lights. And the woman was scantily clad. Uh, she had Kanye in the trunk. She pulled him out of the trunk and I think beat him to death. And I just said, I'm not airing this on BET. And my music programming folks were like, but, but Kanye is a genius and he's going to be mad and he's going to call you. And I said, well, 
you know, let him call me. He wasn't out there, you know, counter protesting or helping me when all these people were outside my house. So they took it all. And then, the, oh, the other uh, feedback was, oh, well, MTV is airing. And I was like, well, right. you know, they're, yeah. they're not setting the standards for our community. And, you know, they have a different audience. Anyway, I took it off. Kanye never called. Never called, never mentioned it to me. And, um, you know, at that point, I said, if I'm going to be the only adult in the room, I'm going to make the decisions. So if it goes bad, I don't feel bad about it. You know, and so I did. I started being a little tougher on um, on videos. Uh, When I took over as CEO, the programming was 60 percent music videos. And that was a legacy from us just not having money for programming. And videos were free. And, you know, when um, Janet Jackson and Michael Jackson made those incredible videos they were making, you know, the record labels were spending a million to two million dollars on videos. So, you know, no one could say it was cheap programming. And by the time I left uh, BET, we had no music videos. We were still Mm -hmm. committed to music through our award shows and documentaries and even reality shows we did like Keisha Cole. Um, But we knew we were different from other networks. And our brand was to respect, reflect, and elevate our audience. And that's what we tried to do with everything that we did. And we knew it was important to our audience, but we also knew our audience had tougher standards. Support for this show comes from Nine West. Winter's finally coming to a close, but you might still fall the very ground beneath your feet with the hottest new trends from Nine West. Nothing beats the confidence the perfect little piece can give you. And their new collections of footwear, apparel, and accessories will let you take on the world in style. Use their Need It Now Edit, also known as the Nine Edit, to search effortlessly through trends like Western-style boots, loafers, and more. It's time to wear our confidence, ladies. We can't be contained because this spring at Nine West, we are infinite. Buy now and get 15% off with code PODCAST24. I mean, did you feel like um, other CEOs or other people um, who were also part of BT were getting as much flack or were under as much pressure as you? Other CEOs at other companies? Yeah, no. or or just or your counterparts. Yeah. No, no one's ever asked Oprah why she doesn't put on news. No one's in the media industry has had the kind of pressure we do. And then when we were in the family with Viacom, MTV and VH1 were in the family. VH1 was doing a black a lot of black reality programming um, mm-hmm. that I knew we couldn't air on BET. And, you know, I had the executives at Viacom say, why can't you, you know, this is getting good ratings at VH1. Why can't you air it? And I had to explain to them that, you know, our audience wanted different things. And uh, on VH1, they could call it a guilty pleasure. On Bravo, when they were watching Real Housewives of Atlanta, they could call it a guilty pleasure. But if we put it on BET, they would say we were destroying the race. So that was a heavy burden. But I always said to my team, 
you know, it's good news and bad news. The bad news is it's a heavy burden. But the good news is when we get it right, the audience shows up in droves. We got mm-hmm. 7.7 million viewers for the first episode of the game. The game had been off the air for two years. Before that, it was on the CW and it got about a million five viewers. Right. So to have it come to BET, for us to produce it ourselves at the same level of quality that CBS was producing it, because they were the production company, um, and to get that many viewers just prove that if you do high quality, authentic programming, our audience will show up. And a lot of other networks have learned that now. You know, a lot of yeah. uh, networks have a black night, uh, you know, like Bravo or we. The streaming services definitely understand that. Netflix is uh, amazing in the amount of um, black programming they have on. And um, so it's it's a great time to be um, a viewer, a black viewer, because there are more choices. Um, and I, I assume that's taken less pressure off of BET. But I'm not, right. I'm not sure. Um, you do have a chapter in the book called What Balance? And I think um, with all of this pressure and responsibility, so many women feel, you know, in high powered roles, um, but also just trying to have a life outside of right. work as well. Um, how did you make peace with trying to find balance, but also just understanding that certain things were going to take precedent over others in certain seasons of your life? I don't think I ever made peace with it. I think I just tried to do the best I could. And uh, luckily, I had a lot of resources. By the time I was CEO, I was making lots of money. And at one point, I always tell this to women, I had four people working for me at home. I had a house manager, and I was single, uh, divorced by this time. I had a house manager, a chef, a babysitter, and a housekeeper. And then I had people working for me at work. So I had a really great support system, but I could afford it. Um, I also could afford to, you know, take the company plane and do a red eye trip from L.A. to D.C. so I could make the holiday program for my kids. I think one of the most outlandish uh, examples is uh, I had had surgery, so this wasn't even a work instance. But my daughter was in junior high and she was in a uh, um, uh, semifinals game, and I was really felt bad I was going to miss it. But being in the media, I sent a, a camera crew <laughs> to film <laughs> it. <laughs> so you do what you have to do. I mean, there are certain events for as a mother with your children or a father, you just know you have to meet. You know, one, uh, back to school night is once a year. So as soon as I got the dates for that, I put it on my calendar and block it off. I couldn't do anything else. I had to be in town for uh, back to school night. The same with Halloween parade or holiday programs. Uh, and the other thing I tried to do was get my kids involved in my work. So if I had a speech on the weekend, I might take my son or daughter. They always came with me to Kids' Choice Awards and then eventually uh, BET Awards and the Grammys. And they both, the, both of their first jobs and their first careers were in the music industry. So some of it rubbed off, but I wanted them to see what I was doing and get the perks in addition to having me travel a lot. So I'd say it's like a seesaw. It just goes up and down. And, you know, you hope that there's nothing so critical um, 
that you have to miss something that's important to your kids. Right. Tell me about a time where you remember making sacrifices for your family and personal life because of work life. Just being away from home a lot, you know, not being able to do homework. A mother asked me the other day, well, did you do homework? No, I didn't do homework. I never, I could not be at home for that. Uh, You know, if I was in the city, I was probably late, but I made sure I hired babysitters who were um, teachers and, you know, and they would come in and help with the homework. Uh, So there are some things like that I miss. You know, I just, I tried to be there. And if I couldn't, I tried to to do a workaround of of some sort. Um, For holidays, I was always there for birthdays. Um, But the overall travel schedule I had was tough. It was, it was tough on me. It was tough on the kids. Uh, and especially after I got divorced, um, you know, there, but to this day, my daughter is best friends with many of her babysitters. She's, <laughs> she's starting to go to their weddings and meet their yeah. babies. And so I'm not saying it was perfect, but you know, you do the best you can. Yeah. Um, I mean, you've also talked about the tough relationship that you had uh, with Bob Johnson and how isolating that was. Right. Um, and, and getting out of that situation. How did you finally get to the other side and, and build up the strength to be able to talk about it and be so vulnerable about that? Yeah, well, it took a long time to be able to talk about it. You know, I talk about it um, in my book. And I talk about how Bob was a great mentor to me and gave me a lot of opportunities and pushed me and appointed me as COO, and, you know, which led to me being CEO. Uh, but for a time, uh, as I talk about in my, my book, we had a personal relationship. And that was tough. Well, first of all, becoming a COO was tough because all my friends were my peers. And when I became COO, that put me above them. And there went all my friends, <laughs> you know, because right, I found yeah. out half of them had asked for the job. I didn't even know there was a job, but all the men had at most of the men had asked for the job. So they right. weren't so happy. They were more um, aligned with Bob because he had hired them. So that was very isolating. Uh It took me six years to build my own team, and that was way too long. Uh, One of the first mistakes Bob made was telling them I could not fire them. And that was uh, devastating to me as a manager because you have to have that ability to terminate people um, if they start acting up. You know, you can't uh, not have that that tool in your toolbox. Um, And then after Bob and I started having a personal relationship that made it more isolating and, Mm -hmm. um, and it was, it was difficult. And we eventually both got divorced at different times. uh, And it became public that we were having a relationship. Um, And that was even more difficult. You know, we had to, we had to let the company know uh, because they had a business contact, conduct policy that said no one that reports to another person uh, should be involved in a personal relationship. So we had to um, uh, disclose it. And then over time, um, you know, with most relationships, you start having disagreements and, uh, and ours was, uh, you know, on the personal side and the work side. Um, Mm -hmm. And so uh, the relationship became abusive. And, uh, and also harassment, because at times, 
the relationship was tied to our personal relationship. Bob would say, well, you can break up with me, but you have to leave tomorrow. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I could just see my career blowing up in smoke and me having to leave a company that I had been at 15, 20 years um, with no reference and, you know, probably a little ability to get a job somewhere else. So I talk about that because that's not your typical Me Too story. You know, Mm -hmm. when Me Too and Time's Up came out, it was more about um, guys who were in hotel rooms doing horrible things to women. And that was not my story. But I wanted young girls to know even what felt like a consensual relationship could really not be if the Mm -hmm. power structure was different. Yeah. And and that's what happened in my case. It, It, you know. I think it was consensual from the stop, but I know in the back of my mind, I'd all, I always had to think about, well, if I say no, what's going to happen to my job? Right. You know, yeah. and yeah, the power dynamic was off. Very much so. So I wanted to especially tell that story. Um, so, you know, young people, men, boys and girls, men and women know what to look for and know, you know, nine times out of 10 office romances just don't work. And, um, for many reasons, but, and when they don't work, you have to be prepared to deal with it. And what do you felt like gave you the strength to be able to, you know, move past that and just be confident in in your own abilities and and your work? Well, over time, I became more confident in my role as a COO. Um, I knew Bob was going to leave at some point because he had only signed a five-year agreement and he was already starting to do other things. He had bought a basketball team and other things. Um, So uh, I became more confident in my own voice, uh, had my own ideas about how BET should be run, which caused more conflict. But I was just getting stronger in my position. And the other thing, I'll be honest, that really helped me was therapy. One of my girlfriends looked at me one day and she said, Debbie, you need to go talk to somebody. And I never even thought about that um, because I didn't think I was depressed. I didn't think I had, you know, other issues. But I, you know, she gave me a name of someone. I went to her and she told me I was depressed and that I had probably had anxiety all my life. She said, then that's why you've been so successful because you study so much and you're so afraid of, uh, you know, failing and mm-hmm. and you're anxious. And I think a lot of us have that and don't really know it. And yeah. so the, the therapy really helped me a lot and gave me the courage to uh, break off the relationship. Uh, after Bob was gone, I had become CEO, um, but gave me the the courage to to break off the relationship and and not be swayed by you know, anything anybody else was saying that this was not good for me and I should get out of it. So what do you hope to see for other young black women coming up in the industry now? In the um, music industry or? Or just in media. Right. Well, I hope to see more black women in the C-suite and going up the corporate ladder. I would love to see more black women um, greenlighting 
programs. Uh, and that's happening to a certain extent and more black female directors. Um, so I want to see us more involved in the creative process. That's the only way we're going to have authentic programming. And, uh, and that's happening. But, you know, I'd like to see more CEOs just because I've been in the corporate world for so long. So I'd like to see more COOs, CEOs, head of marketing. I want our younger women or girls to see images of everything with them in it, that they can be, you know, doctors, lawyers, head of magazines, um, um, artists, CEOs. So I want our young people to be able to dream big and know they can do anything. Uh, And I want them to have the opportunities to do that. I love that. Thank you so much. That was so great. Thank you. In Her Shoes is hosted by me, Lindsay Peoples. Our producer and editor for this episode is Taka Zen. Our engineer is Brandon McFarlane, and our executive producer is Hannah Rosen. The Cut is made possible by the excellent team at New York Magazine. Subscribe today at thecut.com slash subscribe. I'm Lindsay Peoples, and thank you so much for listening. Support for this show comes from Nine West. Winter's finally coming to a close, but you might still fall the very ground beneath your feet with the hottest new trends from Nine West. Nothing beats the confidence the perfect little piece can give you. And their new collections of footwear, apparel, and accessories will let you take on the world in style. Use their Need It Now Edit, also known as the Nine Edit, to search effortlessly through trends like Western-style boots, loafers, and more. It's time to wear our confidence, ladies. We can't be contained because this spring at Nine West, we are infinite. Buy now and get 15% off with code PODCAST24.